This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Jamie Harrison, author of The Center of Everything. We did not have much money. I don't think my father made more than 15000 a year until I was in college. And usually most years, very little. Really had no money. But we always had books. They had books, wine, and food. And that was about it. We'll be back with Jamie Harrison in just a bit. Hi, listeners. It's me, Mitzi, your host and producer. Do you know over the last seven-plus years... I've produced more than 320 interviews. That means if you start listening to one a day right now, I can catch up. And by the end of the year, you will have listened to one a day. Because I'm committed to 40 interviews a year. But this year, I produced 51. And guess what? It's a colossal effort. I mean, gargantuan. I read a book a week research the author, set up the interview, conduct the interview, and edit the show every single week with a staff consisting of me. And please know, it is indeed a labor of love, but it is also a labor. I emphatically believe that what I do, that what we create, the writers and I and you, the listener, matters. There's an alchemy that happens with every single interview Please consider becoming a contributing member by donating at patreon.com slash first draft writers. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash first draft writers. You can give any amount, but starting with $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes, cuts that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's such an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear. I believe that conversations about art and craft make life better especially now when we are missing so much human connection. So whether this is your first listening experience or you have caught the more than 320 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation and a lot of vulnerability if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. It's important to me to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics which dependably add up to conversations which focus on what it means to be alive today. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every question I ask. And it takes money and time and equipment and organization and more late nights than you can imagine and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you're about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. 
Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. In fact, tell everyone you know to subscribe, even your frenemies. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is Jamie Harrison, the author of six books. She has also worked as a caterer, gardener, editor, and screenwriter. Her novels include Four Jules Clement, Blue Deer Mysteries, The Widow Nash, which was awarded the High Plains Independent Booksellers Association Reading the West Book Award, and was a finalist for the High Plains Book Award. Her most recent novel, The Center of Everything, takes place in and around Harrison's hometown of Livingston, Montana. It tells the story of Polly, who is surrounded by close friends and family after a head injury that has some lasting ramifications. As she prepares for a large family reunion, Polly is inundated with childhood memories that cause her to both depend on and question her understanding of her own life. At the same time, a family friend goes missing from a raft trip on the Yellowstone River, and an ongoing search also haunts Polly. We began the interview with Jamie Harrison talking about a line in the novel that also reflects the title. The line is, Good mothers, good mothers were rarities, the center of everything. I wrote this book in part out of an old childhood memory. Um, And it's the memory I write about where um, Polly is looking for her dead people, essentially. She's looking for her grandfather and her aunt. She can't understand why they disappeared. And I also wrote it um, in the wake of my mother's death and my father's death. They died six months apart. Um, And it's certainly not my childhood, um, but there are elements of my parents in those parents and I guess I just spent a lot of time thinking about the people I'd lost and how really fine my childhood was compared to so many of my contemporaries, how truly loved I felt despite a considerable amount of um, chaos. I kind of, I grew up in the 60s and they had no money and we moved around, but I felt grounded and loved and I enjoyed my childhood. Um, Other people hear about it and think, what a chaotic thing. But in fact, it was kind of great. So I don't know that I believe the mothers are the center of everything. I should tell you, um, I think fathers can be too, certainly. But for Polly, it's her mother holding her together in her head injury and in this um, while she is searching for her lost friend in the river. She needs her mother and her mother comes. So at the center of this book is Polly. She's the main character and we go back and forth between her childhood and pretty much present day. It's, it's, I mean, it's not present day, but it it feels present. It's 2002. And we learn that she has a head injury. She lives out in Livingston, Montana. She has a very large family and extended family. And sort of the occasion of the book is that a great aunt of hers is coming to visit for her 90th birthday and she's looking through photos to make an album for her or some kind of presentation and she's having all these memories of her childhood and her childhood was um, very interesting because she grew up with her great-grandparents 
her mom's mom had died in an accident kind of mysteriously and was raised by her grandparents. And so you have these multiple generations of this family growing up together. They lived also with, um, they took in sort of a border, a woman who was kind of on the edge and going a little crazy, who was an artist and her son, Edmund, who was really good friends with Polly. And you're going back and forth between her childhood in Stony Brook, New York, and um, then Michigan, having all these exciting sort of adventures with her family and then her present day where she's getting ready for this party. She has a head injury. And at the same time, a good friend of her family's who used to babysit her kids, Ariel, is missing on a raft trip. So there's sort of a mystery at the at the heart of this. I guess I would say, too, that her grand great grandparents had a great love. Um, her it was I think it was her grandfather, her great grandfather's third marriage. But it was really good. It was um, he was called Papa to a woman named Dee. And they they really took um, Polly and Edmund, their their border child, on on lots of adventures and were lived by the ocean. And she's trying to piece together all these memories amidst this head injury. So there's a little bit of a dreamlike state to what is real and what isn't. And her mom Jane. And her dad, Merle, had come to help take care of her. And so she's kind of recounting some of these memories to her mother. And her mother sometimes is at odds with her about what happened and what what she's just m- maybe remembering from pictures or forcing to, right. to remember. Right. So I just wanted to ask, like, about, like, how did you come up with this story and then keeping track of the characters I mean, there are so many characters. I was like, oh, it's like 100 years of solitude or something. There's a lot. No, it's not that many. <laughs> I did actually, I did a count. I'm trying to think of what I was reading. Well, one um, quote I wanted to read you today, a book that kind of taught me a lot was The Known World. And for instance, I mean, he gets away with probably three times as many characters. Um, it's all how many balls you can keep in the air. And I feel badly about the confusion of my characters. Um, sometimes I have trouble keeping my own plot straight, and that's sort of a joke with Polly, you know, <laughs> what's real and what isn't real. But some of the ideas came from, I really did have this memory of um, my grandfather and my aunt were killed in a car accident when I was about three, maybe even two. And my parents um, moved shortly after, and I was sure I would find them. And I would argue with my mother about that. And some things, you know, they weren't from photos. I really do remember that. I remember looking for these people. I I grew up with a lot of old people and I really remember liking them. When I was born, my parents were very, very young. And so I was sort of an oddity. I think I was the only kid out of that group of college students and professors and stuff. We lived out in Stony Brook for two years when I was a kid. And um, it was an interesting place. So I wanted to play with memory. I wanted to play with the different ways children see the world, the different pacing, you know, their different kind of shifting reality. And the idea that if you do have a brain injury, and I have had one, things shift. You know, you have a kind of borderland. Um, You can get confused. I really, I, I think that Alzheimer's would be the worst fate because... That kind of confusion um, that I had shortly after my injury 
just took me down. All you have is your brain. So Polly is really, really rocked um, by her injury and by not being able to know for sure if what she remembers is right. But at the same time, wanting to remember these people who were so important to her and who increasingly kind of enter her dream life. With your brain injury, did you see your writing or the way you approached life or thought about things change? I suppose it did. It was really right before I lost my parents and everything, you know, it, it was, a let's just say, a busy few years. It was a hard few years. I'm sure, you know, it makes you slow down a little. It makes you work harder. It makes you very insecure. That's one thing. Um, I During it, I was working on... Um, my previous novel, which was called The Widow Nash, um, and it just makes you work harder. And in a different way, I can't hold everything in my head at the same time anymore if I ever did, which makes you wonder why I would have so many characters. <laughs> um, and my my whole office is covered with little stick'em pads and stuff um, and charts. I mean, I, I I do make lists like Polly has that, and I kind of wanted to make have a joke with that. But it was a good way of uh, writing out the experience in a way. Yeah. I wondered if you had some sort of Bible or like something that you consulted because Mm -hmm. the way that you use these characters, it wasn't like you just came to a chapter and talked about some character who was maybe more minor. It's like you would just Mm -hmm. slip their names into paragraphs and events like like a real person would with their real history. Well, I think the hardest part of writing. I've never, unfortunately, even when I wrote mysteries, been able to just sit down and write it beginning to end. I might have the first when I was sort of arrogant and thought I could get away with everything. And then of course I had to rewrite it. Um, I unfortunately don't write things in order. I write things as I want to write a scene. And then I'm left with this mess that I have to put together. And I think that that helps you salt in a more realistic sense of when a character thinks of somebody So much of what's difficult, I think, about writing, at least for me, is the order that you give things in, the order of information. And maybe that is something you get from writing mysteries because it's key. You know, you can write a beautiful paragraph, but you have to put it in the right place for it to resonate. And that's a lot of work. And I have a great editor. I think everybody should be edited. One thing that drives me nuts um, is when I hear of a writer talking about how they just don't need that. And I think everybody does, with a very few exceptions. Um, so, uh, you know, you move things around, you see what works, and you make sure that you have these little Easter eggs in there for people who, who are tracking the full story. The other thing about this book is it really did start with two stories. Um, I wrote an early version, probably, of Polly in New York um, for a screenplay about 20 years ago. When she's a little girl, that section, some iteration of it has been in my head for a very long time. And I also wrote a short story about, um, as a part of this novel where Polly is in New York again in her 20s, and she's working at a restaurant. And essentially two men come into the restaurant, and it's sort of a, a courtship. It's a, it's, a, it's a tease. It's a, it's a seduction with food. That was a short story. And then... Frankly, there are two characters in this that were in Widow Nash, but they're much, much older now. And so I loved those characters so much, I suddenly realized I could use them in the story. 
and it, it uh, changed the whole nature of it. So this went through a lot of iterations. How did you end up starting to write? Um, you, you were a caterer, you had, you had other jobs, and how did you come to writing? Um, I came to writing, um, been living in New York and we wanted to leave. I was working in magazines at that point, finally. Um, and a friend offered us a house in Montana on the national forest line, this old sort of semi-ruined, wonderful ranch house. And that friend who was a painter named Russell Chatham, um, also had just started a press in Livingston and I ran it. I was the editor there. I got to design books. I got to do, it was, it was wonderful fun. It was great. I was in my late twenties and, um, and then we ran out of money as small presses do. Um, the press was called Clark city press. We probably put out, I think like 25 books over the course of a few years, but we ran out of money and, um, I had to come up with a way to stay here. Um, I had a kid by then and there are not or there weren't certainly then many jobs that paid at all um, in the Mountain West. You know, if I didn't want to teach, if I didn't want to work at the newspaper, which I remember paid three fifty an hour at that point. Um, and so I sat down and wrote a mystery, and it worked. Um, I wrote four mysteries in the '90s, and um, and then gave them up. Basically, I could not quite get one a year done. Um, I had a second child who had health problems. And uh, I turned to to writing uh, screenplays, which sort of paid the bills. Some of them were adaptations from my series, which was about a cop in a town like this in Montana. Um, but basically, growing up, my father was a writer, Jim Harrison, and it never seemed to be a good way to make a living writing. So it was kind of funny that I would do this out of financial necessity. Yeah, I was curious about the influence of your dad because he is not just a writer, but probably a, f a famous one. And it must have been just an interesting household to grow up in, but also like wondering if he encouraged you or not. Like both my parents were teachers and they sat me down and said, you can do anything you want, but don't be a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, well, the thing is, words were really important in our house. I mean, it, we did not have much money. I don't think my father made more than 15,000 a year until I was in college. Um, and usually most years, very little, um, really had no money. Um, but we always had books, they had books, wine and food. And that was about it. You know, uh, horses, we lived in the country. Um, so it was an interesting way to grow up. It didn't make you want to be a writer. It did make me want to edit. I probably read more by the time I was 20 than I've read since, but sure. He encouraged me. I mean, when I, um, and he helped me out financially when I lost that job while I wrote the book. And when we, I did screenplays, we were doing it together, which turned out to be a horrible idea. I don't think, you know, we came close to selling things a few times, but basically it was just eight years of, eight years of writing and nothing will ever really come of it except for the practice that doing dialogue and structure might give you in writing. But he was tremendously supportive. I will admit I wrote mysteries to begin with, possibly just to distance myself because the comparison, you know, was hard. I didn't want to try to write a straight novel as Jim Harrison's daughter back in my 30s. But mysteries aren't 
necessarily easy. At least I wouldn't think no. so. <laughs> so, yeah. so how'd you get the head for that? Because I felt like at the center of this book, it's, it's a mystery. Well, I always loved reading them, loved reading them. I grew up reading Dorothy Sayers, uh, grew up reading John, John D. McDonald and Ian Fleming and stuff like that. I always, um, loved a mystery when it gets away with it is such a great form of entertainment and it can be so good I mean I grew up with Raymond Chandler all those things I probably read you know everything I could get my hands on for decades Um, I particularly liked uh, even back then a lot of the Swedish and uh, Dutch mysteries and I I guess I thought I could get away with it I thought I could come up with a well-constructed mystery that amused and transported. How's that? That wouldn't be about me. That's the point, too. I kind of uh, remember writing, trying to write a couple early stabs when I was in New York, and I just had this horror of a semi-autobiographical novel. Is there one mystery out there that you think just slayed you in terms of you were just so gripped and you had no idea where it was going and the end just like just took your breath away? I don't know if I can think of that now. I mean, I remember reading Anatomy of a Murder, and I don't know how how that would hit me now. Presumed Innocent does that, although maybe the writing doesn't, you know? No, I can't think of any one. I just remember sort of an accretion of good books. And sometimes with a mystery, it's not... Very few of them get away with that ending, that perfect ending. We all... We all want that. Um, but I do remember a murder. I don't know if you've ever read Richard Hugo's Death in the Good Life. It's got really the best murder scene ever in it. Um, and I recommend it to everybody. But no, I can't think of any one. I wish I could. Um, I I think those early Chandlers had a huge impression on me. And I know uh, Dorothy Sayers, things like Gaudy Night, I loved. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, let's talk about Polly and then kind of branch out from there. So she's your main character. She has a head injury. She is, you know, despite kind of looking at these mysteries in her own history and then in her present day, piecing things together, having her head injury, and then also wondering about her friend Ariel, who went missing on the river and was with um, a young man named Graham who was in a kayak with this girl and basically most people think maybe he killed her and, but it's hard to prove and maybe she drowned. And so that's kind of going on in the side. And Polly is, you know, she's an attentive mother. She loves her parents. She has all these childhood memories. Tell me a little bit more about what you wanted to create in her and what you really wanted her to wrestle with. You know, Polly, is a lot like a lot of us. It's, there's so many things that you juggle. I mean, there's work. There's she's She also runs a restaurant, or she used to. Polly is trying to make everybody happy, and you can't possibly do that. She's trying to keep her world together. She is spending too much time probably dealing with other people and not enough time dealing with herself, and she, she does not pause. She just sort of ricochets on through her life. And 
we all do that. We all have friends who do that. You, you just get through somehow. Part of it is a pacing thing, frankly. You know, Polly, is, she's had this hard time. She's had this injury. She's trying to get through the summer. And she is trying at the same time to sort of balance um, her life with the reality of what it's like if you have lost somebody to an accident. And if you live in a town like this by the Yellowstone, people drown. And I guess one of the first images I had of, was about that helicopter going over the river every day and knowing that they haven't found anybody yet um, and and how that drums into you day after day after day and how how relieved I've been sometimes when it hasn't been somebody I know. And I thought of that wearing her down. And I kind of, I think it's always interesting to, you know, write about a woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown or a man for that matter. And I kind of wanted to explore that. The book reminded me of, of two things kind of going on. And, and sometimes that comes out after you write it, you kind of figure out like what was going on in your subconscious. That one was about, about time and how time can sort of bend and maybe be happening simultaneously. Like you can be in the present and be thinking about your childhood in such a way that brings all these people to life, that these people that formed you, that gave you these quintessential experiences and lessons. That was one that I got out of it. The other was just finding lost people, like literally trying to find Ariel on the river, but also finding people from your past, whether, whether you actually lost track of them or you just lost a sense of them and are just trying to get that sense back to piece your life together. I mean, Polly isn't old, but she is kind of reflecting on like the greater sort of summation of her life. Well, a near-death experience will do it for you for sure. Um, I think she is trying to keep, I know I wrote this book very much out of wine to keep my people with me, the people I missed, wanting not to forget. And if you're worried about being forced to forget by an injury or anything like that, if, you, if you're worried about losing your grip on reality, it really stresses that. It's, but it's less of a self-interest is, is really missing people. And the one way to get by, get through, uh, like the death of a loved one is to keep thinking of them, frankly, not to the point of driving yourself insane, but to just sort of keep them with you. I mean, people do it with cooking. People do it with photos on a wall. It's sort of to keep them as part of your life. Um, and I think that's what Polly is trying to do sort of belatedly. She also you know, she's not a hoarder, but she's one of those people who think of, I think I use a line, um, think of objects as people or they symbolize people. So she's got, say, things on a windowsill and it means something to her. It brings back those great grandparents and those years to her. And and yeah, the whole past starts resonating a little too much in her head. She can't really separate entirely. And she's being challenged by her mother about what's true and what's not. And most of what she remembers is true. I also, um, you know, when I would have arguments with my mother about what I really remembered, I remember being so annoyed at the idea of how patronized, I still remember being a kid and feeling patronized. Like, you don't know that. You know, you don't, you don't really know that. You don't, the, the idea that um, adults tend to think that children don't understand what's going on, and they almost always understand way too much 
about what is going on in the periphery of their lives or what is what the adults are really up to. I remember feeling patronized and I um, I had fun writing the scenes about Polly as an eight-year-old and kind of examining my own memory and bringing that part of time back. It was too late to say, ask my parents um, about some things that were sort of autobiographical, but it I kind of got through that period by examining it. Well, it's also, too, about maybe ambiguity, that both things can be true, that that Polly's memory or your memory and your parents' memory could be completely different and both be true. Yes, yes. I've always loved that sort of Rashomon point of view. With you saying that... in some ways it was trying to help you keep these people alive. Like how did that, did that work for you? And, and how did that square with your life when you finished? Uh, I think it helped. I mean, and you know, these are not my parents, but I think it, it, I, well, I mean, I love writing. I can't imagine not writing. I never used to think I wanted to do it, but I, I do it now. And I, I don't know why the story of Polly as a child had been stuck in my head for so long, but it really had. And it's not my childhood, but it is a lot like that period in New York. And I had I had a good time going back to it. I had a good time trying to invest it with the sort of magic I remember that, of course, couldn't be true, but that I thought was at the time. I wanted to try to put that across the different ways that a kid can look at reality and how confusing it is to look back as an adult and wonder, you know, wonder about the witch who, you know, lives down the lane, you know, who was that old lady? And then make, make up something entirely different out of it. So the mystery element of this has to do with this girl that's missing on the river. She goes with a bunch of people, Ariel is her name, and doesn't come back. And they go at a time when the river is especially high. It's the very last day of June. It's like running really high. Like a lot of people might not have gone that day. And you said that you, you in your real life see helicopters going overhead and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm just curious about um, the inclusion of this. It, it's like a distraction f- for Polly to think about, but it's also like as a literary device, a way, another way to explore who she is and what she's lost. It's a pacing mechanism in a way. Um, And it's also a bit of her reality. It's a way of spooling out the story. And it's a way, I guess, for me to talk about what it's like to live by the river, to walk along the river, to be worried about finding something along the river. and, and, you know, the Yellowstone, I live on the Yellowstone River, and it's, it's a tremendously powerful, undammed, long, beautiful river. And anybody who lives here does spend, the, hopefully, you know, gets out on it with a kayak or a drift boat. They fish, they float. You take your dogs walking along it every day. And it's a pretty powerful presence in the town. And when somebody drowns, it can't help but be haunting. And I guess when I decided to set the story in the summer, that sort of almost had to become part of it. And it is a real, we have known people who've drowned. Um, And this is not, you know, this is, I don't know if it's a cheap shot or not, but my mother actually found somebody that we knew a few years ago when she was walking her dogs. 
um, who'd been missing for two weeks. So at some point, you know, things really do happen to you that way. I, I don't know if what my mother would have thought of me having the Jane character find um, a body in this one, but, but it did happen and I'll never forget the look on my mother's face. So it was, um, if you're a novelist to use it. When you were done writing this, did you end up like through the process having any change come over you, like either from where you started to when you finished about the way you thought about memory or death or family or even writing? I think I resolved. No, I would say mostly I would, I would almost joke about this. I would just practically say, I believe increasingly in cutting things down. I believe that a first draft is usually shit. Um, I believe that going on too much about death and various luminous things will bore the crap out of people. Um, I loved writing it and I loved winnowing it down. Um, I loved my editor's humor, you know, when he would write blah, blah, blah in the margins. It was wonderful. <laughs> um, I don't know. I had to get it out and then you have to, you have to pare it down to make it count. Well, you worked as an editor. How much of, of working with an editor is a part of your pr- process? Pretty, a lot, a lot. Um, you know, sometimes you never see it coming. I think this time uh, he cut out a big center chunk of the book, or he got me to agree to cut out a big center um, chunk of the book. And I know that when he explained that it didn't work, he thought I was actually laughing and we were talking about it, it was this and that, but he didn't realize I actually lay down on the floor of my office. <laughs> and he was telling me it had to go. And I knew he was right. Yeah, I think you really need an editor. You either need an editor or you need enough time to put it away for a year. I don't know how many other people you interview talk about that, but it's very, very hard to see your own work clearly. For me, it's almost impossible. And sometimes I, I think the parts of this book that are successful are successful because I did put it down off and on. Um, I started some of these stories so much earlier and pared them down and got rid of things that were either going to be too, um, I don't know, namby-pamby, sweet, too. I I wanted things to count. I didn't want to write a really nice book. And I know um, I wanted it to be realistic and I wanted it to be a little bit biting. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? Uh, Yeah, I would love to. Um, I was trying to think of what I would like to the things that influenced me early on were so long ago and there's such a cumulative uh, sense of a book, you know, it, it, it's sort of hard. I I thought of reading uh, the beginning and the end of it play in the fields of the Lord by Peter Matheson, which had a huge impression on me. Um, But there are so many people, so many great books out there and so many, I really can't remember why I loved Newt Hampson. I just know I did, or early John Foles novels, or the things I read when I was a teenager. But this is something um, that I read much more recently and thought of recently. There was an essay in uh, Lit Hub this year, Emily Temple wrote about the known world. And actually, there was a piece in The Times, too. And so uh, Edward Jones, who is one of our best writers, is getting his due this year again. But I wanted to read. Um, a passage about that sort of gets to um, trying to write with a fluidity of time. We talked about time a lot, but um, trying to, 
I just want to read this passage and you'll see how much he fits in there. Um, this is about a character named Moses who's leaving the field. He's a slave and he is done for the day. He went straight ahead to the farthest edge of the cornfields to a patch of woods that had yielded nothing of value since the day his master bought it from a white man who had gone broke and returned to Ireland. I did well over there, that man lied to his people back in Ireland, his dying wife standing hunched over beside him. But I longed for all of you and for the wealth of my homeland. The patch of woods of no more than three acres did yield some soft blue grass that no animal could touch and many trees that no one could identify. Just before Moses stepped into the woods, the rain began, and as he walked on, the rain became heavier. Well into the forest, the rain came in torrents through the trees and the mighty summer leaves. And after a bit, Moses stopped and held out his hands and collected water that he washed over his face. Then he undressed down to his nakedness and lay down. To keep the rain out of his nose, he rolled up his shirt and placed it under his head so that it tilted just enough for the rain to fall down about his face. When he was an old man and rheumatism chained up his body, he would look back and blame the chains on evenings such as these and on nights when he lost himself completely and fell asleep and didn't come to until morning covered with dew. So basically, he's got two pasts in there, two futures. Um, he's got specifics such as keeping rain out of your nose. He's, he's dealing with everything from the slave Moses lying down on the dirt naked to a man dying in Ireland commenting to his wife. Um, and then he jumps ahead to Moses being an old man. Uh, and it's all in the course of a paragraph. I mean, there are several pasts in there and some very specific details about the scent, uh, the future, the present. And I just, Jones does that again and again and again in this book and watching him do it slip back and forth in time and in different lives is really something. It's a, it's a great, great novel. Can you read something you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Uh, yeah, I think what I really struggled with, a lot of what I really struggled with was putting across the sense of being a child you know, um, trying to get my head into being a kid again, because we don't really remember. Um, Polly is probably bullshitting herself most of the time, thinking that she remembers. Um, so this is a, uh, she's talking to her mother, and her mother is doubting her memory, as she does off and on throughout the book. Polly is there at a parade, and uh, Polly is trying to get her point across, as she does throughout. Um, the garden, said Polly. This was the oldest argument, the thing that goaded Polly most. Jane refused to believe Polly remembered being with her grandfather, Frank, tiny in a forest of tall steaked tomatoes. Frank blew his nose like a trumpet and whistled, unlike Papa, who'd been a hummer. He led her down rows guarded by garter snakes and daddy longlegs. While Polly was the kind of child who'd throw up if someone forced her to eat a cooked carrot, she'd stand for hours picking raspberries ignoring the fat buzz of bees, the potential touch of awful things. A photo did exist of the big garden at the, to the side of the house, and Polly and Jane both cared deeply about gardens, and Jane liked to joke that her daughter was poaching a memory from the godfather. Did Frank put an orange in his mouth, give her a plant sprayer? But Polly could see her grandfather rip at a weed hiding in the far side of a green-painted tomato steak. He'd helped her pull at another, but she couldn't make it budge, 
And he sighed and swore when he saw a tomato worm plucking it, writhing from the half-stripped branch, crushing it with a boot. It hissed. No, it didn't, said Jane. Worms don't hiss. They do when your ears are three years old and two feet from the ground, thought Polly, watching her daughter grub for a Tootsie Pop. Nearer my God than thee. It was hard, you know, I just, I wanted to, I think I believed that worms hissed when I was a kid. And I just wanted to um, play with the fact that when you're small, you're small. You're looking up at, uh, you're looking up at the world. It's a completely different world that you inhabit as a child. Where do you write? I write throughout the house. Um, if nobody is home, uh, I don't have an office. I sort of wish I did, but I move around the summer, um, our pandemic summer. I wrote as much as possible outside, which is a trick in a high wind area in Montana. Um, I just take my laptop out and only come in when it was dark, even if I had to wrap up in blankets. But I have a little desk upstairs and uh, I'll you know, move around, dining room table, wherever. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I actually kind of hate getting away from writing. I love writing. Um, I, since I do it so inefficiently, I do it off and on throughout the day. I don't stop at a given time, but I, I love to garden. Um, I uh, play tennis if it's not windy and snowing. I cook a lot, like Polly, I guess. Who do you show your work to first for feedback? Uh, my husband, usually, um, almost always. My husband, um, I have a great uh, agent, Dara Hyde, um, my editor, Dan Smetanka, probably those three. I have a couple of friends who will vet it for me, too, who are really helpful, friends who help me proofread. But my husband, we've been married a long time. We've known each other since college. How have you dealt with rejection? <laughs> um, well... You know, it can crush you. It, it sort of depends on if you, how have I dealt with it? I did not publish something for about 20 years. So I think the hardest thing about rejection is it can, if there's enough of it, and if you believe in it, it just shrivels your brain. It can really make it hard to um, to think creatively. I think it's good um, if you get a little bit of, I don't know, a little bit of praise, a little bit of encouragement, it helps you write better. So it's hard. I, uh, I dealt with it by, I always write more than one thing at a time, which might make it hard to produce things on schedule, but it does help give you some perspective because you can put things down and pick them up and put them down pick them up and, and get some perspective on the rejection. Um, you know, is it, is it a question of timing and luck or is it a true fair criticism that you've received? And it's usually both. Some of the rejections I've received have been sheer timing and you just have to wait it out. And some of it's, you know, well-earned. Sometimes you read your writing and you think you know, six months later, oh my God, why did I show that to anybody? What is your favorite word? I think um, they change. Um, and currently I'm in a, a mood where I was thinking of how much I was using words like irked or hapless or um, a lot of sort of Anglo-Saxon goofy words like that, fretful and feckless. And I don't know why I'm using those words right now. It's not that I have so much of a favorite word, but I will go through a manuscript at the end and rip out things that I... Um, overuse 
I keep a little checklist and I often will just go through and search for uh, L-Y space and rip out adverbs before I turn in the book. I don't know if other people do that too. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and having this conversation. Well, thank you for having me. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Jamie Harrison, author of the novel, The Center of Everything. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Christy Stilwell, whose Montana-based novel, The Wolf Tone, tells the story of an extended family trying to reunite and unlikely friendships that are forged along the way. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. May this year, 2021, be the beginning of better days for the world at large. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.